Support for On Something comes from the Rodman Law Group, a Denver-based law firm with a global reach. The Rodman Law Group specializes in cannabis, hemp, business, and securities law. Learn more at therodmanlawgroup.com. Support for On Something comes from Way to Grow, providing growers and gardeners with knowledge and tools for hydroponic and organic urban gardening since 2003. With locations in Fort Collins, Boulder, Denver, and Colorado Springs, learn more at waytogrow.net. From Colorado Public Radio and PRX. This is On Something. I will say that um, the, the second major surgery, I got kind of the funniest reaction because that was the big one. It was my reconstruction. Angela Bryan had breast cancer. And as is often the case with breast cancer, she had surgery. After they do the operation to try and save your life, they do reconstructive surgery. It's a second operation to tidy up after the first. They basically give you a tummy tuck and they take the flap of flesh from your stomach and they turn it into a breast, which is fascinating, but extremely painful. So painful that patients in Angela's position are often prescribed powerful opioid painkillers to aid in their recovery. I mean, when someone cuts your abdomen open from hip to hip. I mean, that's a, it's an extraordinarily um, intense sensation of, you know, your skin being forcibly pulled together. Um, And so it feels very tight and, you know, stinging. And actually the absolute worst thing that would happen during that time is if I sneezed. That was probably the worst pain I've ever felt in my whole life (laughs) um, is sneezing during that recovery. Angela was offered opioids, but she didn't want them. She had another plan to deal with her pain. Uh, the poor the poor nurses and caregivers, I feel a little bit bad for deceiving them, but not really. This is On Something, stories about life after legalization. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. This is the second story in a mini-series we're calling Medicine versus Marijuana, about the odd ways in which legal cannabis intersects with our healthcare system. Today, we're here to talk about pain. Pain is one reason that America saw nearly 48,000 opioid overdose deaths in 2017. What we know now as the opioid epidemic began innocently enough. It began with people in pain. In the 90s, doctors began to prescribe patients more and more drugs like oxycontin, codeine, or morphine, powerful painkillers that are powerfully addictive. As of 2017, despite national and local efforts to respond to the growing rate of overdose deaths, prescription opiates still accounted for more than two-thirds of those deaths in the U.S. It's the reason more states have turned to legal, regulated marijuana as a possible alternative pain treatment. But here's the kicker. There's not a lot of evidence showing that it works. But that didn't deter Angela. She planned to use weed to deal with her post-surgical pain. And to understand why, you need to know 
more about her. And what is your relationship with weed like? <laughs> like most of us, when I was an adolescent, I had some exposure um, to it here and there. Never really thought it was that interesting um, as a young person. And then didn't really think much about it for quite some time until my mid to late 40s when I was diagnosed with cancer. What, um, what year was this? This was 2016. 2016. Yeah, okay. end of 2016. And this is like a regular mammogram you're going in. Um, yeah, and, and I will be honest and say I had skipped a couple of years, and I should not have done that, so get your mammograms every year. <laughs> um, and got pulled back in for uh, an ultrasound and biopsy, and, I mean, they knew pretty immediately that it was not good. Actually, it was the ultrasound technician who first mentioned that cancer was a possibility. I... I, I thought that it was nothing. And I thought, no way. No way could this happen to me. I eat right. I exercise like a crazy person. You know, there's no way. And so I didn't even have anybody come with me to any of these really? appointments. No, because I thought, meh, it's no big deal. You didn't think anything bad no. was going to happen. So wow. there I am, you know, by myself at these appointments. <laughs> I think that the best word is devastating. At this point, she says it was just a matter of figuring out how bad it really was. Then her care team could determine her outlook, whether or not she was treatable. This took a few weeks of just waiting. I never really believed that anxiety was a thing. I'm not an anxious person. I never have been. What's that like? I always, <laughs> I always thought that, you know, people who had anxiety were just weak. Somehow this didn't feel like a surprise. You've probably gathered by now that Angela is a pretty cool customer. But in this limbo period, where it felt like a lot was hanging in the balance, it was the uncertainty that made her a believer in anxiety. It's a real thing. It's a full body sensation that takes over your mind and your thoughts and your heart rate and your blood pressure. And it it was crippling. It was really crippling that time in between the diagnosis and finding out whether or not they can treat you. How does a person even wait for something like this? Angela tried all of her favorite activities, hiking, yoga, spending time with her kids. When I was doing all of that stuff and was still just shaking and heart racing and couldn't, you know, slow my mind down that I started turning to something else. It's actually at that point that um, it was my husband who said, maybe you should try CBD. Actually, his mother had tried it for rheumatoid arthritis to great success. So Angela thought, why not? So you did take CBD? Yep. Yep. How did that work out? When you watch somebody else take it and it works for them, you think, well, you know, placebo effect. I'm mm -hmm. sure it's. <laughs> mm -hmm. And by the way, I'm a huge fan of the placebo effect. The mind is a powerful thing. And so if it works for you, do it. Mm -hmm. um, but that, you know, there was a part of me that thought, you know, well, that might work for her. This is not going to work for me. But it helped. It helped quite a bit, actually. She says, it just made her feel like she could function again. The fear, the uncertainty, it was all still there, but it was no longer all-consuming. Finally, 
she got her treatment plan. For starters, she'd have to have surgery to remove her left breast. After that, eight rounds of chemotherapy over 16 weeks. Then, over a month of radiation, followed by another surgery to reconstruct her chest. But at least now, there was no more waiting. You have a plan. You know you just have to get through the next thing. You just keep going. The hardest part uh, of all of it was knowing whether it was going to work and whether I was going to get to see my kids grow up. Mm. I mean, did they give you any sense at the outset of, like, what your outlook was? Yeah. I mean, they, they were pretty confident that they could cure me. But the cure, Angela doesn't like that word, was on the other side of a grueling treatment and a painful recovery. Well, I mean, the the surgeries are like any surgeries, right? So there's, you know, extensive surgical pain that happens, recovery from that. And all the surgeons want to give you a bunch of opiates to take home with you. And my personal feeling, knowing, you know, the there's no beat epidemic, that a lot of people get addicted after surgery by no fault of their own. I didn't want that. Instead, she decided she wanted to experiment with cannabis. So she tried to discuss this option with her doctor. I actually uh, emailed the surgeon through the patient portal and said, you know, I want to talk about cannabis for pain management. And she didn't answer on email. She called me. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and she was fantastic. She said, you know, we're not supposed to have you know cannabis products in the hospital. We can't dispense them to you. But if you want to have them and take them, I'm not going to say anything. Hmm. But you kind of can't say anything either because we the nurses could potentially take it. So it has to you. happen under the table, basically. So it's all on the DL, which I found, you know, kind of amusing, but also disappointing. Remember, this was all taking place in Colorado in 2016. Medical marijuana had been legal here already for 16 years, since 2000, and recreational since 2012. This is a state where cannabis is pretty dang legal. But it was still federally illegal, a Schedule One drug. So, by and large, physicians essentially see no evil, hear no evil, say no evil when it comes to marijuana. Don't expect hospitals to stock it, provide it, or even talk with patients about it. So, with the tacit consent of her surgeon, Angela essentially signs up to smuggle marijuana into the hospital. And here's something else you need to know about Angela. She's actually a researcher. Her specialty is neuroscience. And one of the things that she studies in the lab? Cannabis. We have another project, interestingly enough, that we started right before I was diagnosed on cannabis and cancer. Um, We have a project on cannabis and anxiety. I just started another project on the metabolic effect of cannabis and the influence of cannabis on um, diet and physical activity. So Angela Bryan, that's Dr. Angela Bryan to you, is a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience. She studies how the body responds to cannabis when it's used to treat anxiety, pain, or even cancer. But was this the first time that you considered cannabis as like a medicine for yourself? Yes. 
So I reiterate, actual scientist researching pot in the lab resorts to secretly bringing pot gummies to the hospital. And she's ready to medicate right after surgery. I just immediately, as soon as I woke up, um, took a 10 milligram edible and, uh, you know, just sort of laid back down and let it sink in and, and start taking effect. When they wheeled me up to my room, it was probably about 40 minutes after that, and put me into my room where I was going to recover, the nurse sort of looks over at me and says, huh, how are you feeling? I said, I'm okay. And I had a little bit of a grin. And she said, yeah, that's, that's interesting. We, we've seen a lot of people after the surgery you just had, and, and your color looks really good. Like, yeah. usually people's color doesn't look that good. They look pretty white as a sheet, and, and you look okay. I'm like, yeah, I feel okay. <laughs> after that, she gets moved somewhere else for a couple of days to recover. And it's important to remember that during this time, she can't really get out of bed on her own. Yeah, in the in the hospital, um, my, my husband, Kent, and my mom were kind of the, the team at the hospital who made sure I had my medication <laughs> when I needed it. So and by the way, I didn't know it would work. Even the scientist didn't know whether this would work. And part of the reason is that there's way more research on opioids for pain than there is for cannabis. We'll hear more later about how she's trying to make up for that. I made room for the possibility that, you know, okay, fine, let's switch to opiates because this isn't working. So this was an experiment. This was an experiment. Yeah. And um, what ended up working quite well was going in between Advil, Tylenol and cannabis. So it was kind of I would just cycle between them. So kind of every two hours I'd add one on board. I think my providers were a little surprised because they kept coming in, are you sure you don't need the opiates? I'm like, nope, I'm good with the Advil and Tylenol, thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah, to them, you must have just Yeah, been an so I, I must have looked like some weird superwoman to them. The but, lowest um, drug tolerance in all the world. It, yeah, yeah. Just Tylenol for <laughs> just me. Just Tylenol. <laughs> um, I, uh, I have to say, I was in the hospital for something just like totally not even close to this, and I was offered opiates, and I was like, yes. <laughs> A lot of people say that. Yeah, yeah it seems yeah. it's like, and I, you know, there was fully an epidemic happening when this happened. And yep. I, I, you know, may have paused for like a millisecond, but yep. also like I couldn't imagine saying no to it because what else would I have done? Yeah. And and I'll say two things about that. One is that I um, went through unmedicated childbirth twice. Oh, my God. So I know from pain. Right. And you and can take I, anybody. Yeah. And, <laughs> I, and I know that um, I have a high pain threshold, so I don't necessarily know that what I did would work for everyone. I see. Um, but I I also know um, that I was very motivated that even if my pain wasn't at a zero, even if I was at a two with cannabis, that was fine with me. Okay. I didn't need to be at a zero. And so I was very, very motivated to not go down the opiate road. This is one of Angela's big disclaimers. This is what worked for her, and it's not necessarily going to work for everyone. But the bottom line was that she found something that worked for her. And her providers were none the wiser. In fact, they kept offering her opioids throughout her recovery. But she never took them. And I've never taken opiates, so I don't know. Never. If, I, no. 
So I don't know what that, like how that deals with pain, but I can tell you that for cannabis, it's not that it completely takes all the pain away. The pain is still a little bit there in the background. You just don't care. You're not just thinking about how much it hurts. Right. Okay, so that's how the cannabis worked for Angela. It didn't completely block out the pain, but it turns the volume way down. I was able to decrease my dose pretty quickly after both of my surgeries. So whereas like immediately post-surgery, I was on like 10 milligrams or 5 milligrams when I was taking a dose. You know, I figured I'm going to take what I need to take. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it, you know, makes me very sleepy. Um, It's hard to be real interactive. And so I was motivated to take only what I needed so that I wouldn't be so dopey. Right, right. Once I was down to like about a 2.5 milligram, then I could do whatever. I could Mm -hmm. answer email and, you know, have meetings and do the normal stuff. So maybe you've listened to this show before or you are a person in the world and you might be wondering, the answer is CBD, right? Why didn't you just take CBD? It's known for having all of these anti-inflammatory effects and it's not the stuff that gets you stoned. So why, instead, did she go for the full Monty, THC and CBD? We know that pain is the result of inflammation often. And Mm -hmm. so I think part of it is it actually does decrease um, some of the um, inflammatory processes that are involved with pain. And then the THC has the function of making you be able to deal psychologically with the Hmm. pain. Like, I know the pain's there but it's no big deal. So the THC and CBD are a package deal for her. Both provide some benefit. And she argues that it was as effective as opiates might have been without the risk of addiction. It didn't change the nature of it. It just changed the intensity. So it was manageable and it was still there. It was still tight. It was still stinging. But instead of it being an eight or a nine... It was a two or a three. Angela considers this personal experiment successful. And after a break, we'll learn more about Angela's scientific weed experiments in her somewhat unconventional lab. Hey, it's Anne. I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Listeners like you make On Something possible. Hundreds of thousands of people have listened to our podcast since it launched back in 2019. You've been there with us while we've explored everything from CBD to cooking with cannabis to social equity across the entire industry. It is really humbling, and I am so grateful. The reporting, the stories told, and the issues explored, you made all of that possible. And if you feel like helping our show, head to onsomething.org and contribute if you can. Once again, thank you so much. All right, so Angela Bryan, a professor and researcher at the University of Colorado in Boulder, had been researching pot for a couple of years before she got her cancer diagnosis, gathering data on marijuana's effects on anxiety or pain. She runs a team that conducts all kinds of marijuana studies, along with her research partner, Kent Hutchison, who also happens to be her husband. 
They started doing this before recreational marijuana was legalized in Colorado in 2012. At this time, only medical marijuana was legal here. What we wanted to do was to bring people on campus and to, you know, have them use products and then we do whatever testing we're, do, we're doing, whether it's cognitive effects or pain or anxiety. Um, they said, no, you can't do that. If you want to study cannabis on campus, you have to get approval from the DEA and the FDA, and then you have to get the um, federally approved cannabis, which comes from Mississippi the Nida Farm in Mississippi. Yeah. I hear it's not very good. Oh, my. So this is why Kent stopped doing this research, because in his original studies, he went through all those approvals. And it's, you know, it's crazy. You get interviewed by federal agents and there's all these levels of bureaucracy. And then the funny thing is your cannabis cigarettes arrive FedEx. What? (laughs) They just FedEx Really? Yeah. And the FedEx Mississippi weed is not just bad. Um, A couple of our participants actually vomited because it was such terrible quality. It just bore no resemblance to what people were using. And this was back in like 2006, 2007. There's another researcher, not us, but another researcher who literally put the Mississippi product next to a product that you could get at any dispensary. And the Mississippi product looks like grass clippings. So Kent and Angela packed it in on marijuana research until 2012. Then it became legal in Colorado, and we started thinking, oh, we should maybe pick back up this research and, you know, figure out a way to do some of that same work, but with legalized products. So they try it again, and they submit their plans to all of the various entities, including the higher-ups at CU Boulder. And right away, the walls go up. So we we sent in our protocol, and they apparently immediately sent it to the CU legal team, and everybody came back and said, oh, no. You got in trouble. (laughs) You are not allowed to do this. And we said, why not? It's legal. But it's legal at the state level. It's not legal at the federal level. And one of the regulations that governs all um, educational institutions is the Drug-Free Schools Act. And that is a federal act that says that Illicit drugs are not allowed on educational campuses. And Except even, for the dorms, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> but as researchers, we couldn't buy it, bring it into the lab, right. give it to people, which is interesting, right? Because, you know, Kent has done a ton of studies where he brings people into the lab and gives them alcohol. Mm-hmm. But we couldn't do it with cannabis because even though it's legal in Colorado, we're subject to the Federal Drug-Free Schools Act. And the consequences for violating that act include they could yank all the federal funding from the institution. So Angela and her husband spent three years trying to find a big old detour around this federal roadblock standing in the way of new marijuana research. Our first idea of let's just rent some property off campus. And they said, no, that won't work because once researchers are on that property, it becomes research property. Right. So that didn't work. And so Kent finally said, well, if we can't bring the people to the lab, can we just bring the lab to the people? Can we just put it on a van and drive to their house? Like the bookmobile? And that's essentially (laughs) what we have. The Canavan is a mobile pharmacology lab. It was actually almost called the mystery machine, you know, like from Scooby-Doo. 
but Angela lost that debate. And the nice thing is that it's ecologically valid, right? Like these are products that people are actually using. Right. These are the products that we need public health information about. Yeah, not Mississippi weed. Not Mississippi weed. No. In spite of all of the obstacles, the canavans of the world have made some progress. For example, remember what we were talking about earlier with CBD being an anti-inflammatory? Angela and Kent say they were able to prove that in the lab using blood samples from study participants. Their inflammatory markers decrease. Hmm. And if they're using something that's just THC, we don't see that decrease. A lot of our work is suggesting that to the extent that there are beneficial effects, the combination of THC and CBD seems to be more effective than either one alone. This finding is pretty consistent with the research that's already out there. It's a theory described as the entourage effect. Although, as tends to be the case with science, every discovery leads to even more questions. But one thing researchers seem to agree on almost unanimously when it comes to cannabis is that more research is needed. Seriously, I feel like that's mentioned in every academic paper that I read for this story, and that's a lot. The bigger problem, and there's really no other way to put it, is that the federal government's policy on cannabis overall is completely unclear, which means states have been the ones test-driving Angela's method, so to speak. In the years since Angela went through cancer treatment, Colorado made it legal for doctors to recommend marijuana as a pain treatment, post-surgery or after an injury, where they might normally recommend opioids. Colorado is the third state to do something like this, despite the uncertainty around the research and the federal policy. Two other states, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, allow for medical marijuana as a treatment for opioid addiction. There's not a lot of evidence for that either. I also want to be clear. These laws do not remove all the barriers for people who want to try marijuana as a pain medicine. Doctors, hospitals, they all have the discretion to say no. And above all, your health insurance will pretty much always say no. But Angela says we're in a crisis right now. It's worth trying things that might minimize the damage sooner while we look for answers in the long term. And she says that takes some creativity. I think what it's highlighted for me is that we assume Opiates are the only way to treat post-surgical pain. Right. Um, and we need more scientists studying different ways of addressing pain, of mm -hmm. helping people to deal with pain both pharmacologically and psychologically. I, and, and this is my own personal bias, is that I think we're too quick to turn to pills. Right. Mm. We're too quick to say, I need a drug that will make this go away. We know that people respond to different treatments differently. Mm -hmm. um, and so to believe that there's just one thing that should happen for everyone who's in pain and that one thing is opiates, um, I don't think does service um, right. to, to people who are experiencing whatever the condition might be. Likewise, cannabis alone didn't help Angela recover. She's really clear about that. In fact, she's really clear in general about the words she uses around her recovery. So remember way back when I mentioned that she doesn't like the word cure? 
Uh, my oncologist used the word cure regularly. Um, that word makes me nervous because cancer's always looking over your shoulder. Yeah. Um, you know, people think they're cured and then it comes back in their liver. And <laughs> so I don't like that word. I prefer the no evidence of disease okay. word um, or um, acronym, I guess. Uh, and that's where I am now. And I still, you know, to this day, worry about it. You know, when and if it's going to come back. On the other side of this whole cancer experience. Yes. I mean, is your personal relationship with pain changed or affected at all by this? Um, Well, I started CrossFit. Um, Oh, my God. (laughs) You're a masochist. Well, um, I guess, you know, one figures if I've been through all the things I've been through, why not try CrossFit? (laughs) It seems like it's sort of a badass thing to do. So so why not? Um, So I don't know that it's changed, actually. I think um, I think I would. Definitely, if I, you know, God forbid, have to have um, other surgeries, um, I would do exactly the same thing that really? I did. Yeah, I. Um, no regrets. No regrets. No. On Something is a labor of love reported and written by me, Anne-Marie Awad, with help this episode from this guy. Yeah, me. I'm Sam Brash. This show is produced and mixed by Brad Turner and Rebecca Romberg. Our editor is Curtis Fox. Music by Brad Turner and Daniel Mesher. Our executive producers are Rachel Estabrook and Kevin Dale. On Something is made possible by lots of talented people like Francie Swidler, Kim Wynn, Dave Burdick, Allison Borden, Matt Hers, Kendall Smith, and Jody Gersh. And our illustrator is Iris Gottlieb. See more of their art on Instagram at Iris Gottlieb. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. And this podcast is also made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Colorado Public Radio at CPR.org. Support for On Something comes from the Rodman Law Group, a Denver-based law firm with a global reach. The Rodman Law Group specializes in cannabis, hemp, business, and securities law. Learn more at therodmanlawgroup.com. Support for On Something comes from Way to Grow, providing growers and gardeners with knowledge and tools for hydroponic and organic urban gardening since 2003. With locations in Fort Collins, Boulder, Denver, and Colorado Springs, learn more at waytogrow.net.